Mozart was a master of 451, just like Ricky Skaggs or the Carter family. That's today's guest, International Bluegrass Music Association Mentor of the Year, Annie Savage, helping us understand that whether it's European classical composers or American country artists, it's all just 12 notes and there's no reason to box ourselves in. Welcome to Music Ed Insights. I'm Alan Fire here with Steve Shanley. Each episode, Alan and I talk with national thought leaders in music education with practical insights for K-12 music educators. Steve, tell us about our guest. Annie Savage is an international string clinician and performer of American Roots Music. A prize-winning contest fiddler from the age of eight, Annie has performed with artists from Aretha Franklin to Ricky Skaggs. She currently teaches her popular method for group improvisation at schools, conferences, and festivals. Find Annie's full body show notes and resources at www.musicedinsights.com. Alan, what was a high point for you in this interview? It's all about access. How can we get kids to plug into making even more music? She has ideas. Some are easy. Some are challenging. One suggestion is to stop using the word styles to differentiate music too much. What did you dig, Steve? I appreciated how Annie explained that many of our diversity and equity issues are an outgrowth of problems in music teacher preparation programs, and she does offer some great solutions. Her thoughts on the way that we accidentally create performance anxiety in our students really hit home, kind of painful as I look back. Let's get to this conversation. Annie Savage, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me, Steve. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, let's start with your take on some terminology. We've got alternative strings, eclectic strings, roots music. Lots of those types of phrases have been used to refer simply to not classical music. What terms do you think we need to know? What do they mean to you? Why are they important? It's a great question. And it's a point that a lot of, I think, educators get stuck on. How do these different kinds of music sometimes taught by ear? Free strings is the terminology that I'm using because really to me, this is all just about chord changes and half steps. It isn't even about notation versus by ear. I use whatever mode works for the student. Um, I try to keep in mind that they need to have a lifetime in music. So I love lead sheets because it gives us access to a lot of different kinds of music. But even in my own uh, development as an educator, I've really moved away from seeing different styles like bluegrass or jazz or classical music. And I really just think about chord changes in the work that I do. It's all just music and half steps, right? So even Mozart was a master of four, five, one, just like Ricky Skaggs or the Carter family. There's very little uh, reason for me as an educator to build boxes when boxes are not there inherently. So I try to keep my curriculum as style-free and open as possible, but still giving students something that they have enough structure around to understand. You mentioned lead sheets. For our listeners who don't understand or maybe know that terminology, you're referring to a melody with chord indications of some sort. Do you use lead sheet and this this approach when you might, for example, be teaching you know European Baroque music or, or Mozart, as you referenced? You, you use the same lead sheet approach as you might when working on bluegrass or jazz? It's a really interesting question. It would get very messy with the Baroque stuff. The format that I use to teach classical music is primarily notation. We're still in a paradigm where we're talking about large ensembles, I think. And yet I think about what my students will do in their lifetime. I think about what happens in my classroom, but I really project like what is going to keep the student playing and how am I going to do that in the least 
white supremacist way. So how am I going to do that while not reinforcing gender and racial stereotypes? Because even as a woman and as, you know, a bluegrass player, for example, that racial breakdown starts to work both for and against me in the classroom. So I have gone in a direction of teaching skill sets and not styles of music because I feel very ethically bound. And I think that the words that we use to call things, what we use to frame skill sets in has everything to do with whether we're gonna have racially diverse and gender diverse programs or not. Practical question then, your orchestra rehearsal with the 80 students in it, do you have part of the rehearsal dedicated to reading the traditionally notated music with the parts specifically spelled out and then also in that large ensemble setting, lead sheet reading, that sort of thing? Or is it outside the school day? How, how do you divide all of that up? So yeah, I start out my rehearsal with by ear with uh, what I call free strings um, exercises. I mean, there is no style attached to those exercises and we do, you know, five to 10 minutes of that, um, just to get students playing music musically. And I, like I say, this is paper, this is music, right? The music is in you. The paper is like a, a, a delivery system for the music. Let the record show that when Annie said, hey, this is paper, this is music, she was waving a piece of paper and then putting her hands over her heart in an emotional fashion when she said, this is music. And it's, it's important for y'all to know that. So I have a separate ensemble called Free Strings that operates like a, like my pops, you know, to the very traditional person. This is my Liberty Pops Orchestra. We're participating in the community. And this is where I think string teachers have a really interesting job because we have to invent this. It doesn't, it doesn't exist as like jazz band or show choir, which I think anyone in public ed would back me up in saying that those are very valuable recruitment tools for the, your very upwardly mobile students, in addition to students of diverse backgrounds who may see themselves more in that style of music. So I have to invent that because it doesn't exist for string players. So what I've done is um, almost like multiple little bands where I teach songwriting and I may have a viola player that grabs a ukulele. We're just a band and we perform together and we call ourselves the Free Strings Ensemble. And my goal, my career goal is to replicate that curriculum and start it in other people's, help other people start Free Strings Ensembles within their programs. Because if we don't have it, as this cultural sensitivity piece rolls through and continues to really, really look at what Western European classical music is, essentially a place the size of Iowa for 70 years, we've built our entire lives around it as orchestra programs, we have to look at this issue. So uh, you mentioned bluegrass playing. For those who don't know, you're an accomplished musician in the bluegrass genre. And one thing I've heard people say about you specifically and others in this situation is, well, yes, if I could play bluegrass music like Annie Savage, then I would teach bluegrass in my program. Uh, so what do you tell teachers who are who are maybe willing to try something, but are scared about the fact that they themselves do not have that same level of expertise that someone like you might have in a genre? And that's a really interesting question, Steve, because I think that um, a lot of times within classical music, there's this idea that something needs to be complicated. And so it's easy for people who have been trained classical musicians, a.k.a 
pretty much anybody who's certified to teach music in the public schools, right? So the good news is improvising over three chords by ear is something that I can teach another human within six one-hour classes. And through six six classes, we go from can't make a chord to can get around one, four, five pretty easily and improvise a melody over it. And um, my answer is not necessarily bluegrass, but learn an instrument that is a chordal instrument if you're a string player, either ukulele, piano, or guitar. You have to understand chords. All musicians understand chords. So it sounds like if someone is a little nervous to try a new genre, you are saying, I believe, the pool isn't as deep as you think. You just need to wade in a little bit and you'd be surprised how quickly you're going to be comfortable doing some of these things. It's true. And I, you know, I would love to brainstorm the level of anxiety that is the byproduct of thinking that there's one right answer. We learn performance anxiety. We teach performance anxiety. I just tell my students, you know, who's nervous for the concert? Everybody's nervous for the concert. I say, well, this is what happens when you put on slippery dress shoes that you may or may not be able to walk in. You wear your little starchy white shirt that nobody ever wears in real life. And, you know, you put the audience in the dark. You put the innocent, like young players up on stage with like interrogation lights. And, um, and behold, we have anxiety-making performances. Now, earlier you mentioned jazz band and that that is a good recruiting tool for school band programs. And usually when we think about jazz band, we're picturing trumpets, trombones, saxophones. The only traditional string instrument might be the bass. And even then it might be an electric bass, you know, looking more like an electric guitar than, than the upright bass. What are your thoughts on how we might be able to give our string players more opportunities to experience jazz music or should they be experiencing jazz? music? First of all, string players have to plug in. They cannot be happy to only play acoustic music. You have to be able to function. If you're going to play pep band, if you're going to play even the pit orchestra, a lot of times we'll have kids plug in. So any orchestra teacher out there that is saying, you know, I hear people doing like, I hear Mark Wood does this electric violin thing, which is very strange looking and very stylized. What about pickups and, and having electrifying your string orchestra, for example, is relevant. And this is where the rub is. If you're gonna play with horn players and drummers, you have to plug in. If you don't plug in, you can't survive. If you can't survive, you can't play jazz. And there's an entire record industry out there that would show you that there are as many jazz string players in the world as there are jazz horn players. And if your listeners are looking at, you know, what to, how to get into it, I love along these lines, Ed Sarah wrote a book called Black Music Matters, which even to me, I was, I'm pretty liberated. I, I was like, what? And then I got into the book and it's like, wow, this man has got social justice in public school, large ensembles figure it out. He's got mindfulness in there and he's got creativity and play in there and how that brings us to a more sophisticated place, not a less sophisticated place. My sum total, where does this magic start? Where does creative string playing really start? You have to be able to plug in. So in this setting, the jazz band plus strings, ideally for you, is this a band director running a jazz band and allowing string players to be a part of it? And they transpose trumpet parts for the violins and trombone, you know, cellos on the trombone. Or is this the orchestra teacher is creating their own jazz band and inviting band students? How does this look like practically real world? 
And these are great questions. And, and you highlight like the limitation of reading notation that we never really talk about. So in my program, I have a drummer and I have many electric guitars within my ensemble. And I am doing um, what I think a lot of people misinterpret as bluegrass or fiddle club, because that's the only paradigm that they have for string playing by ear. And of course, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that if you're going to market bluegrass, you're really doing some questionable things ethically with it, with regards to race and music. Okay. So I go back into um, what are the, what are the style free opportunities for string players in my room? Um, on the other hand, the jazz band can operate with violins quite easily. You can uh, transpose, but I would hope that what's happening in, in a lot of jazz bands would be that they're teaching a lot by ear as well. To continue on the, on the jazz discussion, arguably one of the most beautiful creations to come out of the horrible American slavery melting pot experience. Um, do you, as you talk about this genre and, and teach it, do you, do you talk about the experience of, of jazz music and how it relates to what it meant to be black in America in the 1920s, 1930s, or to be black in America today? Does that play into, or is it just the notes and the, and the music? The question that you're asking, um, I would answer with no, because I didn't live it. Okay. I would bring somebody in to talk about it. I talk about playing bluegrass as a woman, and that gives me a lens into the feeling of being marginalized in a music industry, which I have been, and we all have for other reasons. And all I can do is really speak to my own experiences and then invite other people in to speak to theirs. Um, and but but an interesting point for your listenership is that that role of bluegrass musicians taking a solo after everybody plays the head was a decision made by Bill Monroe's record label based on jazz. And they said, hey, this is really cool because you can have like each person is like an action hero. You know, this guy's taking his moment in the sun and then your banjo player is taking his moment in the sun. And um, and so that entire mechanism of jamming is not bluegrass it comes from jazz and you can bet i i educate my bluegrass clinics along the lines of true racial participation not what the record industry decided to make it seem like i would love your tips on the high school student who comes to you and says i'd like to join orchestra i've never played any of these instruments before what do you do how do you involve someone who hasn't been reading the notation hasn't worked on technique on the violin before how do you get them involved and that's a really interesting question and what i found was what first i just opened my door to anybody anybody who wants to come in can do it but i want them to understand that they may not have the same experience as the person sitting next to them so this is why it's critical for all high schools to have a music class that is open to all students, regardless of participation, because it's no fun to open the door to some kid who's never taken private lessons and they're going to learn in their experience that they're not as good as the person next to them. We, as professionals, whether you're band, choir, orchestra, it is your responsibility to offer a class that does not require previous participation or you are not doing your job for the other 80% of the students that are in that school. Only 20 to 30% of the kids will ever participate in music in the high school. And the lifetime music 
participation rate for students who don't is higher than kids who are taking music classes. So if we're not serving our entire population, we're not serving the taxpayers. We're not doing our job. There is no debate about that in my mind. I'd love to teach that class. I mean, just uh, that, that excites me. I haven't been in the classroom on a daily basis in 10 years. And I hear you say that. I'm like, oh, I want to do that. That, that. That's cool. Are there some links to some very specific advocacy tools? Because I feel like I'm thinking about the schools in which I've taught. Um, I, I think I would find it hard to teach my uh, or, or to, to talk my administration and or you know, guidance office into offering that class. How do we sell that? I don't know what your school is, but have the district pull the racial demographic and you will see that it is not equitable and that it is their responsibility to the entire racial makeup of the high school or whatever school you're at to change it and use and use the difficult language. Because this is what we're called to do as educators. Use the difficult language. These are the numbers. It doesn't add up. It can't add up by the time you're in high school. So we added a class called Hear My Voice, and it's heavy garage band. That's a great idea. And if any good can come out of some of the awful events of the last couple of years, I think the ability of a teacher to go into an administration now and say, we are not equitable. We have some real issues in this that, that now more than ever administrators are saying, oh, oh, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll take a look at that. I think that's, that's wonderful advice. Well, Annie Savage, thank you for joining us today as you uh, shared your insight on these important issues. Are you ready for lightning round questions on a couple of lighter topics? Ooh, this is my favorite because it's so improvisational. Album recommendation for someone brand new to listening to bluegrass. Oh, wow. Um, I would listen to Bluegrass Album Band because they just, everybody is fitting their in their role. Um, I also love Della May. Della May is a killer, uh, all-female uh, bluegrass band headed up by Kimber Ludiker, who is uh, an incredible, one of the best violinists and fiddle players in the country. Um, and if you want some virtuosity in there with your um, hammer-ons and your, you know, uh, G-runs. <laughs> Favorite children's book? By far, The Phantom Tollbooth, because of the land of letters and the land of numbers needing to coincide. And I also use a lot of uh, the Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance in my teaching. It's not a children's book, but I love the two mindsets. One is classical, where you're bound to the whole. You're going to do your job. You do the Boeing exactly as it's written. You don't even think about not, don't think on your own terms serve the whole and then romantic which is now it's about you you want to get creative this is your chance to really choose what you want to do i have to have those two mindsets in my program so i use that language with my students do you have a piece of music or a composer that you wish more people knew about or were programming with their groups i wish that more colleges would bring in hip-hop artists like I just want, uh, especially for my string players, we brought in um, Tony Blackwell in the university last year and, and, and the string players who are violin majors could not figure out how to play the repetition that's required to play hip hop. So all, all humans should bring in, I mean, especially string players who have, you know, you know what I'm gonna say, really a reputation for having poor drive and poor groove. And it's all about the groove. So um, yeah, everybody needs to be able to groove. And if you can groove in your in your like Friday night life, but you can't groove on your instrument on Monday morning, 
There's something going on in the curriculum there. So flip side of that, and this is a safe space, no judgment. Is there a classical piece or composer that you would be just fine never programming or playing with one of your groups again? <laughs> I don't, I'm not going to name any names, but I am going to challenge your listenership to um, the many, the many white dudes on JW Pepper who are not great composers and instead are um, season names that we accept as Mendelssohn, but might sound more like Merle Isaacs. Why are we doing this? Go straight to the source, arrange the piece yourself. <laughs> um, so my, basically I would wipe half of the JW Pepper catalog away from my screen. I wanna deal with people who are interested in being present in the what is happening right. I do not need some white guy from Ohio to tell me what I need to do. <laughs> especially when it's like lots of Boeing and, and that kind of stuff. So that follows, I, it's met, you know, a good friend of mine, Marie Montilla, who is a, an educator here in the area. She said, this isn't Mendelssohn. This is Merle Isaacs. <laughs> it's like my favorite. You're right. And finally, what do you think your career would have been if you were not a musician or music teacher? Defense attorney. You know, like a really p poorly paid defense attorney that's like, but the power of the people, you know, so kind of, <laughs> I, I would have loved to have gone to law school. I've spent a lot of my career as a music educator creating rationales for why I think things should be done ever so slightly differently. But um, I, I don't know. I started playing Suzuki violin when I was two. Um, at the age of 14, went through a dark depression and came out the other side saying, I want to be a musician. And that, and that was, I always knew what I wanted to do. I've always wanted to have a hand in providing, I think, um, a, a, a slightly different perspective in the public school orchestra classroom. That has been my goal my entire life. Well, the legal profession's loss was certainly the music education profession's gain. So we are grateful for your choice. Uh, Annie Savage, thank you for being with us today. Yeah, thanks for making time for coming uh, you know, to us live from Tennessee. Thanks so much. Yes, I enjoyed it. I was, ironically, I was sitting in a workshop and I was studying flat fives on the guitar. And um, we were talking about Tony Rice invented that. Steve, did you know Tony Rice invented the flat five, or do you think it was around before that? <laughs> I think it may have been around before that. It might have predated him. It might, maybe even people on other instruments have done it, too. You know, I think that's my summary takeaway is just open your horizons. Don't get caught in boxes. There aren't any boxes. You know, I, I um, one of my favorite painters says, this is life. There are no rules. Uh, and um, I think where it all goes in the long run is, how do you create excellence in this? How do you create rigor and excellence? Because I'm still a big believer in excellence on top of all of those other ideas. And that's where I'm at in my career. So I look forward to hearing more from you guys about that, I hope. You've been listening to Music Ed Insights. Please support this podcast by subscribing, rating, and reviewing it. We want to make this as thoughtful and practical as possible. Please send us your ideas for guests and suggestions for improvement. You can do that through our website, www.musicedinsights.com. You can also reach us on our Facebook page, Music Ed Insights, or via 
Twitter at Music at Insights. Our website is also the place to find program notes, links, and a one-page download of this episode's key takeaways. That's www.musicedinsights.com. This podcast is sponsored and supported by Normal Design, Winterset Websites, Group Dynamic, and the Co-College Music Education Program. Learn more about them at our website. And let us know if your business or organization would like to join that list. New episodes drop every two weeks on Monday mornings. Get current. Stay relevant. Music Ed Insights.